Hey everybody, this is episode 82 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is with me via the interwebs. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We have another great guest today, which we're excited about. Tina Muir from the Running for Real podcast is joining us as our guest. She is an elite level runner from the UK who has trained mostly in the US since coming to college here. Her most recent claim to fame is talking about amenorrhea via the media upon her retirement for running. She struggled for nine years with not having a period, which is a I think fairly common thing that happens to elite women that have are training at high levels and are super lean. And so Tina has sort of become this de facto spokesperson, so to speak, on that condition and her dealing with it and coming back from it to get pregnant and now have a baby. And so we're going to be covering lots of different topics with Tina in a fascinating discussion, talking about her running career, her goals to become an athlete on a British world team, and then her bouts with amenorrhea and how she dealt with that and then sort of having a baby and post baby and that whole process. So lots to cover that I think everyone will be able to relate to. And you know, I think for those women that have dealt with this condition or who worry about this condition, it's going to be an important topic to cover with Tina. So we've got her teed up for our, our interview today and we're super excited about the discussion because not only is she cool and funny and has a good story, but she's also super real as her podcast title relates. She definitely pulled no punches in the interview with us. And I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion for everybody. Yeah, Chris, it's going to be, I mean, I I was, we had a lot of fun with this one. I had a little bit of a, of a, of a faux pas there in the middle of my, uh, one of my statements, which I think our listeners will get a whole lot of laughs about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but she rolled with it. She did. She was a she was she's a fantastic, fantastic guest. We uh, we keep getting good ones, Chris. We keep getting lucky somehow. <laughs> so, if you'd like to learn more about Tina, we'll link to her webpage, TinaMuir dot com, where she also has all of her podcast information and more on her bio. So I'll also link to some of the recent media articles on her. She's been featured in People Magazine, amongst others, talking about this very important topic. So. We'll get to our Tina conversation in a second. We've got some intro topics to cover, as we always do. And we're going to start by talking about Boston Marathon champion Desiree Linden, who has been in the news recently for a couple of reasons. One, she was on a couple of really good podcasts, and I'll link to these in the show notes as well. you got to check her out on Rich Roll's podcast, as well as the Finding Mastery podcast. Both came out this past week with... Des on there talking about some of her keys to success and leading up to her Boston Marathon victory. But this week she had a couple of big announcements. One is that she's going to be racing New York, which is super exciting in the fall, trying to go at it in another major marathon. And she also announced that she's leaving Brooks Hansen's, the team that she's been with since she became a professional runner. And you know, it's it's interesting. We saw a little bit of a chink in the armor in that relationship in her Boston 
marathon press conference before the race where she talked about some of her frustrations with them bringing on Dathan Ritzenhine and the cloud of sort of doping suspicion that is over him during, because of his time with the Nike Oregon project. And so that, that showed a little chink in the armor. We also knew that she'd been training apart from the team really in the last couple of cycles, kind of on her own this time before Boston in, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area solo. And so she's kind of been doing her own thing for a while. They've also just recently brought on a huge new batch of young runners straight out of college that are at a clearly different level than Desiree. So, and she was pretty straightforward about the departure that it was just time to move on, but didn't give us a lot of details. What do you make of this change for her, Steve? I don't know, Chris. You know, it's it's a little, I guess, in some sense, it feels like we should have seen it coming. Um, and maybe you did. I, I think we had a short conversation about that um, at one point, but uh, it kind of took me from left field. And I, and I don't mean for the sense that it doesn't make it, it doesn't make logical sense. I think it does make some sense. I think that um, it'll be interesting to see what plays out from her angle with Brooks, um, what will play out with her getting, with her having coaching. But most importantly, I think the thing, this, the reason why this does, even though it sort of came out of left field for me, it does make really good sense because she's kind of, it feels like she's now at the point where um, she no longer believes in the system there. Um, And, uh, if that's the case, if that's what it's that's what it seems like to me, then this is the best move she can make, regardless of what happens from her competitive standpoint from here. Because you always need to be in a place where you believe and you believe you believe in what you're doing, you believe in your coaches, you believe in your teammates, and you believe in that energy that's being created for you in that space. And if that's not happening for her, then I think it's the best thing that she can possibly do to get out of that environment and do her own thing. I mean, she's been at this for a long, long time. She knows what's best for her. She knows what responses she needs to get physiologically. And she's one smart cookie. So, you know, ultimately, I think, um, again, while a little surprising, it, it, it make, there's a, some sense of logic here that, that um, I, I really get with and I understand. Yeah, to me, in a lot of ways, it's, it's surprising that she stayed with them this long, given the success that she's had. And certainly they've been a part of that success, but as the Hanson's official account tweeted after Des left, basically they said, Hey, we're a developmental team and, and Des is developed already, you know, so kudos to her and hats off and we wish her the best. And so in a lot of ways, she'd outgrown the group a long time ago with the success that she'd had. And there hasn't been anybody she's really been able to train with since the very beginnings of her time with Brooks Hansen. So in a lot of ways, it didn't really make sense of her because of the fact that she really wasn't a part of the team anymore because she'd outgrown it from a result standpoint, from a training standpoint. It is interesting. You know, to me, some small red flags kind of started going off around Boston where I saw one of the Hanson brothers interviewed afterwards and he was obviously very excited for Des, but it seemed like he was disconnected from her in a way during that experience that he was watching it as a fan more than as a coach. And so that kind of surprised me. And then of course the fact that they weren't at the finish line, it was Josh Cox and her husband at the finish line, her Josh Cox being her agent. And, you know, and then you didn't really see them together at all. She didn't really talk about her coaches in the post race press conferences. So it, it would seem clear that some, 
some shift had already started leading into Boston. And now, you know, this is just kind of this playing out as, as you might have expected if you'd read the tea leaves. Then the more interesting question to me is where does she go from here? I think, I think anybody would want to have Des in their program or any coach would want her in, in, you know, in his or her purview. And so where does she go? And, you know, for that, there's really no telling. I, I tend to think that she'll probably end up perhaps training solo as she's basically been doing the last several years, maybe coached by our agent, Josh Cox, who's a distance runner in his own right and has trained for the marathon distance himself. So maybe that's where he ends up. I can't really see her going to a big major group or program, you know, like I think it'd be awesome to see her go to the Bowerman track club, but I don't see that happening. Any thoughts from you on where she might end up? I think you'd hit the nail on the head, Chris. I, don't, I just don't see at this point in time in her career, why she would move to needing to do work with other people or for other people. Um, she's probably got all that she needs and knows all that she needs to know. Um, and honestly, how much longer do we have with De- does Deb have and does have in a career really, when you think about it, I mean, I believe that she'll be someone who will run and run at a pretty competitive level all of her life. I see Des kind of in that same, that same mold as Joan Benoit, you know, who will never stop doing it because it's part of who she is. And, and, and she has such a strong, um, fan base and such a strong resonance with so many people, both male and female. But I with I'm with you. I just don't I just don't see what she needs to get what she gains from another group. Um, I do think who the coaches will be interesting. Um, but uh, you know, ultimately, I just think it's really good to see an athlete who feels strongly be able to act in a way that they feel is best, and the kind of courage that takes to make a change late in a career. Um, in my opinion, is going to put her in good stead, and uh, it'll be interesting to see really how it plays out. Well, and it's certainly not unprecedented for athletes to make these types of changes. I mean, it's probably more unusual, as I mentioned, that she stayed with the same group for so long. But we certainly wish Des the best, and I would definitely encourage you to check out those podcasts. She has some really good advice and nuggets in there. Obviously, she talks about the sort of keep showing up mantra that she has had for a long time, but she had a couple other great quotes. One of them from the Rich Roll podcast where she said, basically, failing is an action, not an identity. And really trying to emphasize that, you know, to fail or to to not get what you want isn't the end of the world unless you unless you let that become a part of who you are versus just recognizing that that's a part of the process. It's an action that you make just like having success as an action that you, that you make, and then you keep working after that. So lots of good stuff in those podcasts. Highly recommend checking both of them out. And as I said, I'll link to those in the show notes. We'll see, you know, but it'll be, we'll, we'll see where she ends up as a, with the coach, but it'll be cool to see her at New York. It seems like Shalane, judging by the Bowerman babe, babes, various Instagram accounts, as well as the, the Bowerman account itself. It seems like Shalane is in training mode again after the crazy, the crazy result in Boston. So I would imagine you'll see Shalane on that starting line as well to defend her championship. It may be her final race, her swan song. We'll see, but it'll be cool to have those two in the field at New York. 
Yeah, Chris, I agree. It's going to be interesting to see. I'm excited about it. All right. So next topic for our intro, we've got to give Sarah Hall kudos again. She just keeps showing up with results. I mean, she had the marathon PR recently turn around to go race in Australia and got earned a half marathon PR at the Gold Coast half to win in 69.27, taking nearly a minute off of her PR in the half, showing and and not really too far after that marathon PR. So she turned around quickly for that to get to win that race, which is a pretty big race in Australia. Has a big international field as well. And Laura Thweet ended up running 70-17 to get third in that race. She's one that we've mentioned on this podcast before us, a name to kind of look out for at the marathon distance, but who's had some setback and setbacks in the last year. Good to see her back on form. She earned a PR there in 70-17 as well. Those two getting it done for the Americans, two on the podium there. Pretty impressive, though, from Sarah Hall. It seems like she's really now at the age of 35, I believe, starting to build momentum that would tell you, hey, maybe she has a chance to make an Olympic team as a marathoner potentially for 2020. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, I, I was really happy to see Laura's results. Um, and it is good to see Sarah back in the and having such a great result there. Um I mean, it just gets crazier and crazier, Chris, when we think about what's going to be happening in the marathon over the next two years for women. Um, it, it's just, I, it's mind boggling to me. You know, it just really, really is the number of qual, the kind of quality and the depth of quality. Um, that race in Atlanta on the women's side, especially, is going to be so intriguing and it's so interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, but yeah, these two are two that we, I'm pretty confident we're going to continue to talk about all the way up until race day. Yeah, which is another reminder for those that haven't already planned to be in Atlanta for the 2020 trials. It's time to start thinking about that trip. All right, so last topic, which is a race that will play out on 4th of July. So as you're listening to this, it would have happened, but we encourage you to go check out the results. The largest 10K in the country, the Peachtree Road Race, always happens on 4th of July. This year, like last year, it is again the USATF 10K Road Championships, and the American fields our, are stacked. On the men's side, we've got Shadrach Biwad, who finished third in Boston, Emmanuel Bohr, who just did well at the US 5K, Sam Chalanga, who was at the World Half Championships and who trains with Scott Simmons Group out of Colorado Springs, Chris Derrick from the Bowman Track Club. You've got Kibet, who just finished third at the U.S. 10K Championships, Bernard Lagat, old, old man Lagat's in this field, Heron Lagat, who did solid in the steeplechase there at USA's, Lopez Lamong, who won the 10K. You've got a couple of the Zap athletes, Tyler Pennell and Joe Stillen, who was a guest on the show, and Jared Ward, Jared Ward former Olympian in the marathon. On the men's side alone, that's a pretty ridiculous list. <laughs> I know yeah, that, and, and and a huge range from marathoners to 5K athletes. And so it's cool to see that happening. It's going to be warm as as the Southwest has been going through a heat wave. And it's going to be a challenging course because we know Peachtree is pretty tough. I know that this race will have already happened, but who who do you like from this field for the men's side? I mean, 
it's so hard to say, Chris, but I would say right now, don't count Lopez Lemong out, right? I mean, after his big win at the 10K distance at the U.S. Champs, um, I think that I'm not picking him to win it necessarily. I'm just saying, because it's too hard with that field to say who is going to, you know, there's too much depth there. It's really hard to say. I would love to see Chris Derrick put his nose in here, but the race might be a little bit short for him and where he's at. And Chris, this course makes it really, really tough. It's, it's a really tough course. You add the heat to it. And uh, even if you do try to lay, play it out and say, oh, this is what's going to happen, I think uh, a scenario in which the race goes slow because of the weather and because of the hills early on only lends itself to a Lopez being dominant in, in the finish. But um, it's really hard to say. I like, I'd love to see Derek up there, and I, I think that we will see Lopez LeMong at the at the business end of his stick at the end of this race but it's hard to say exactly who's going to win it it's just too many great names um too much talent and um you know lately if it's it, it it's it's been really hard to tell if career's not at 100 percent. so you know otherwise you'd say career right <laughs> Well, career's not in the field, I don't think, but I do like his no, teammates. By the sense of just saying he was always, he always, he and Kipchichir always seemed to be up there. You know what yeah. I mean? And and, and I think it's a uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see other faces, other names, and and how it all plays out. Yeah, without those guys, it's it's kind of wide open. I still like his teammates, Kabat, Boer, Sam Chalanga, that group that trains with Scott Simmons. Heron Lagarde is now with that group. So I do like that group because they could also work together and keep it honest. And then honestly, I got to think, depending on how the race plays out, you got to give Bernard Lagarde a chance to at least make a podium here. He's continuing to show that he can get on form. And when there's a U.S. championship on the line, you can't count him out. So I would love to see old man Lagarde somehow squeeze his way onto a podium. On the women's side, also a solid field, not quite as stacked perhaps, but you do have a really solid and deep field with Olafine Tulliamuk, who's won the most recent road championship. And you've got Molly Seidel, who did well at US Cross, Sarah Pagana, who just did well in the 10K at US at USA's. You've got Ali Kiefer, who did well at New York Marathon. Gwen Jorgensen is in this field. She got added late after USA. Sarah Hall is in this one as well. So Stephanie Bruce, who just finished third at USA. So solid women's field as well. Maybe not quite as deep. There aren't quite as many names that I think have a chance as there are on the men's side. But solid on the women's side, who do you like? I mean, I don't know how with Sarah Hall's 10 uh, half marathon that she just ran. I think that she's got to be someone you got to think about. And in, in, in this mix, she seems to be back in fighting spirit and ready to rock and roll. Um, is the distance a little short for her? I'm not sure. Um, Sarah Pagano has been running really, really well lately. You know, she didn't have the best USA's, but she put her nose in it against some, uh, against some really, really solid competition. Um, so it's really hard to say, Chris. I hate to be hedging. Usually I don't. Usually I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick this person right here, you know. But I guess if I had to pick somebody right now, given how hot she is, I would probably pick Sarah Hall. All right. Well, nobody could fault you for that. I'm going to go with Stephanie Bruce uh, coming, off of her, 
come off of her performance at USA's. I think that was a confidence booster. We know she's got marathoner's strength, but has been working on the speed end of things. I think on a hot day, on a tougher course, I like someone who's shown some recent success at the 10K, but has the marathoner's mind that she brings to the table. And I think if she's going to win a U.S. title, this could be it. Although we can't forget about Alphine Tolliamuk as well, her now teammate there in Flagstaff, who's I, I think also got to be up there as well as one of the favorites. Yeah. So we'll see. But by the time you listen to this, folks, go check out the results and see how Steve and I did. Peachtree is is an American icon in terms of road racing, and it's definitely one you always want to look up after the fact. And with seventy grand on the line for the U.S. championship here for the 10K, that's a lot of jack to be uh, to be passing out. <laughs> <laughs> so, definitely something we should be following as well. Cool. Those are our intro topics for today. Now we're going to jump to this interview with Tina. As we mentioned, of course, you can also check out all the details on Tina's background at Tina Muir. That's M-U-I-R is her last name. And I think you're going to get a big kick out of this interview. She's both funny and real, and we cover all things. So here we go. We'll bring Tina on. Are we welcoming welcoming Tina Muir to the show? How are you doing, Tina? Thank you. I am doing well. I'm uh, excited to be talking to you guys. Yeah, we're excited to have our first fellow fellow podcaster on the show. So I know Talk- all your tricks. I'm going to see too. anything coming. <laughs> you do. Yeah, exactly. We, we like the title of your podcast, Running For Real, because we're all about keeping it real. So we, oh, yeah. we plan to do that for sure with you on this one. Yep. No, I'm, I'm all about that. So that's fine. <laughs> awesome. Well, first question, just to kind of jump in, we'd love to learn more about you as a runner, how you got into the sport and how it evolved for you and and kind of start with sort of pre elite level career you know how did you get into it from a kid on up yeah well I think something important to mention is that you know people often think that elite runners are just kind of naturally you know at the front of the pack they're beating all the boys they're you know, if they're a girl, they're, um, you know, just winning everything everywhere. And, you know, the parents are saying, oh, you know, they were running all over the place when they were a kid. I knew they were going to be a runner. But I mean, that may be the case with some people, but I think a lot of people it's not. And it definitely wasn't the case with me. I mean, I think my parents will search about as far back into their memory and maybe somehow miraculously remember me being running around a lot. But I think that's just them being you know, optimistic about things. But um, no, I really didn't have any kind of ability. I didn't like running. I remember cross country uh, in school. I hated it. Uh, I didn't really see the point, kind of like any other teenager, you know, um, why are you making me do this? My face gets all red and, you know, I don't want to get sweaty hair and things like that. So I I was very much the same as any other teenager at the start. and I've told the story many times about how I actually hid in the bathrooms um, for the tryouts <laughs> of the cross country team because I just didn't want to do it. I don't know if maybe I can't even remember that. All I really remember is hiding in the bathrooms. But I wonder now if I some somewhat knew I was near the front of the class and knew that there was a chance I might end up on the team. And so I didn't want to you know, take that risk uh, because I was competitive. But uh, yeah, either way, I hid in the bathrooms. But then... 
the next thing I remember about my childhood or my teenage years was somehow I was on the cross country team. So somehow, some way I got roped into it. And um, it was only when I finished fourth in my town uh, that it really, the competitiveness kind of got me. And I thought, you know, I can get first. If, I, if I'm if i fourth, that's within my reach. And uh, that kind of ignited this um, competitiveness for running that I'd never seen before. And uh, thankfully, one of my teachers knew of a coach who I then worked with. And, and then from there, I, you know, I got a lot better. But my coach was uh, very adamant from the start that he was not going to push me too hard or too far um, early on. So he held me back a lot. Uh, during my teenage years which I'm so thankful for now Um, and uh, so I didn't improve hugely but I I did well enough to kind of attract the attention of some U.S. universities. I was listening to your Emma Coburn podcast and she had a similar story in a sense that you know she was only doing 15-20 miles in high school and was doing a lot of other sports captaining teams and playing Mm -hmm. volleyball and other doing ice hockey and other crazy things and so didn't have a crazy crazy deep high school career in terms of her running which you know as we look back now seems to have been a beneficial thing to have that that mixed background where she became an athlete before she became just a runner absolutely so how much do you think that played into your development later that you didn't have this precocious running early year i think that was a huge part of it and especially for me i was a swimmer uh, I mean, most people have who have been swimmers in the in the past have some kind of uh, correlation to running when they eventually go across with that, you know, the lung capacity that you get. And I think, yeah, I did swimming. I did a sport we called netball in England. I'm not sure if either of you guys would have heard of it. It's like basketball, but without the backboard and there's no dribbling. It's like a it's a girl sport, um, but it's yeah called netball, and I loved it. And um, we would play, I played that, I played field hockey and I swam. So all of those things I think contributed because like you said, you become an athlete and you develop strength in other areas and it doesn't make the running so much training when you're younger. It's just kind of, what do you enjoy? We'll go do that. And then we'll worry about the training when you're older. So I think that for me, as well as Emma was a huge part of um, being able to come into the sport when I was fully developed to uh, really approach it from a way of you know let's see what I can do because I haven't burned myself out I knew a lot of girls growing up who had you know trained hard since they were you know 10 11 years old and they got to you know 18 and they were kind of uh, I'm done with this now so I didn't I'm glad I wasn't one of those people yeah and then and then for those young women who are in that position their bodies change yes. right through that process which then sure. throws them for a loop and the expectation levels that they had before I started as a young, young runner. I started when I was six and started racing when I was eight. But my father was really smart. He wouldn't let me run very high mileage. Mm-hmm. And I was I went to a private school for my first through junior high, which is, you know, basically sixth grade through ninth grade in the US. Mm-hmm. And so I played basketball and soccer and a whole bunch of other things. And while I was running, you know, 20, 30 miles a week and racing, I was still wished I was, you know, Larry Bird, the basketball mm-hmm. player or uh, you know, some other soccer player. I was, I wanted to be somebody else other than a runner. So it helped that way. I do think the mental piece of that process as young runners is probably more important than what happens to them physiologically because aerobic development is aerobic development. Um, what, what's critical is just staying excited about a sport that at the end of the day, 
is really fucking boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I think especially teenagers who do kind of push through that, um, you know, push through that boringness, I guess, of the of the running at that age, they kind of use it up and yes. uh, and then get to the older ages and it's like, well, I don't I don't want to do this anymore. It's, you know, been there, done that. So um, I think that is a part of why it definitely in England and I think here too, there is a huge drop off um, from, you know, the early 20s where people just have had enough. So then you came to the US, competed at Ferris State University. Was that a big change for you? <laughs> um. Yes and no. I actually lived in Indiana for three years when I was a kid from age two to five. So my family had come back to visit many times to to the US. And um, so America was very much ingrained in my culture. So I kind of knew what I was getting into with uh, the just a way of life here. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to go because I loved the you know, many British people get quite annoyed with their, yay, yay, you can do it kind of attitude. <laughs> but I, I loved that. So I was all about kind of uh, coming over here and getting all the support. Um, but then going to Michigan was was definitely a bit of an adjustment. I had spent some time in California the year before. And so going from California, you know, perfect weather in Orange County to Michigan snow was a little bit of a adjustment, but it kind of went from one direction to the other in the way you wouldn't expect. I first got there and I was so excited to see snow all the time, you know, went running around the golf course in knee deep snow because like giggling to myself, cause I thought it was the best thing ever. Um, and just loved it. Uh, but then by the end of the time there, I kind of was burned out on snow and, and just hated it. And, and now, you know, when my husband looked for his, next job um a few years ago i i said to him we're going south of michigan i i cannot handle the snow anymore so it kind of went in the opposite way it was the adjustment was very easy going in but over time it kind of became more difficult because of the weather and missing my family and just missing out on things but um obviously i adjusted over time to just being over here and staying in touch with people you were an 11 time all american there how did you adjust as an athlete mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it was, I was going through a bit of a, I don't want to say a, a rough patch. I just kind of had lost, I was very disenchanted with running coming out of high school. Um, I was, I did go a bit too far in the partying end of things. I was going out, uh, it was really bad at one point. My final, my senior year of high school, I started, you know, I'd go out on a Thursday and try and race on a Saturday. And then I'd go out again on the Saturday and try and do a long run on the Sunday, things like that. So that had really caught up to me in that year after. So when I got to university over here with everyone being so dedicated, I'd never seen anything like it. Like, you know, having practice, having to be places all the time, it kind of put me in line, kind of the same way it would, like if you went to the military, it was uh, <laughs> very much like here, you be here at this time and you do this. And I was like, okay. And, you know, they'd flown me over there, pay, were paying for my, paying for everything. So I couldn't, disobey them or well, in my head I couldn't so it kind of <laughs> knocked me back in line and it got me back um committed which which helped and allowed my running to kind of begin to improve and allow me to get to those all America awards now was your coach while you were at 
at first? It was it was your current husband, or was it? Did you find your current husband? Who my is, current who husband? Sorry, <laughs> yeah. right, your always <laughs> husband. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't plan on any. <laughs> yeah. When did you meet your husband? And because he's your coach, so I... yes. Because <laughs> I've never had anyone say my current husband, so I thought I'd just yeah, well, clarify that probably. he's permanent husband. Um, Very bad form on my part. I apologize. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, unless well, then unless you've heard about my love for Leonardo DiCaprio, if he <laughs> comes along and asks me to marry him, then Steve may get dropped. But um, yeah, uh, uh, what was I can't even remember what the question was about meeting. Yeah, Steve was my coach in college for um, the last three years I was there. Um, we obviously were not together at that time. It kind of was something that came about when I left. Um, and went to do my master's in Philadelphia that we kind of, you know, realized and spoke about it. And um, she had to do two years of a long distance relationship before we actually even got to be in a relationship. But then, yes, in long answer to your question, that was uh, how I met him. And um, he still is my coach now. So obviously has all that experience of working with me to know what I do and don't handle very well. (laughs) Was there a transition in moving to the U.S. in terms of what your training looked like? Yeah, I mean, like you said about Emma, I was very much the same. I actually found my training journals, if you want to call it that. It was like one sentence every few days uh, from when I was in high school. And it was it was so funny just reading through it and seeing, you know, um, wow, I ran 21 miles this week. And, uh, you know, just being really excited for doing, you know, 12 200s. And uh, so when I came to the US, um, I... Uh, to go to Ferris State, I um, I think he built me up to about 40 miles the first year. And I, one thing I remember about that was him, the coach at the time saying to me, you're going to be running every day of the week. And I was like, what? What do you mean running every day of the week? I need a rest day. And I just couldn't wrap my brain around it. He was like, no, one of them will become essentially a rest day. But I just could not understand it at all. I was like, how am I going to do this? I'm going to get injured. Um, and I couldn't believe that people ran every day of the week. So that was the biggest adjustment um, going to seven days a week rather than I think I was running five before. So um, that was an adjustment. But overall, uh, it was just the increase in mileage. <laughs> every day. I think that's funny. You know, we have we, we are a, <laughs> we have a training program here in Austin and, and one of our episodes is called Miles Matter. So we we are big proponents of Lydiard style mm-hmm. training and that you got to do the work in order to get the results. And ultimately, we also put people on journeys like you're describing, going from one level of mileage to another over time and building that in a smart way so they don't get injured. What did you ultimately build up to in that progression during college? During college, the highest I got to was about 70, I think, um, it, which is still very low for a, a college runner at the level I was at. Most women were kind of getting to 80, 90 miles a week. Uh, but for me, 70 was my highest. And, and that seemed like a lot to me. But we did also include cross training, like swimming and pool running in there, uh, because I did have a few injuries in a row. And so it made me a bit nervous about running much more than that. And also, like Steve didn't really see the point. Um, he's always been someone who doesn't think that you need to, you know, run a certain number of miles just for the sake of it. Like for example, my highest mileage ever was 99.6 and he would not (laughs) let me go out and run that last 0.3. 
or 0.35 or whatever it was. And um, so, uh, you know, he's always been someone who you do what you need to do, but, you know, I'm not going to get caught in caught up in numbers. So, yeah, 70 was the highest. We like Steve already. <laughs> we, just had, we just had an episode on running rants where we talked about that. The, the insanity of trying to get to a certain mileage level by doing silly things like running around a parking lot. Oh, yeah. Well, the only reason I didn't go out and sneak out and do it is because I thought, you know what, if I do this, if I go out and just sneak, you know, half a mile, I'm going to roll my ankle <laughs> and then he's going to be like, well, I told you. So I was like scared of karma coming to get me for disobeying him. So I just had to let it go. But as you can tell, it still bothers me to this day. <laughs> Could have had that 100 mile week. <laughs> I don't know, just once. So, <laughs> so Tina, that... That transition from going from, you know, being a a, a, a really good collegiate athlete mm-hmm. to then taking that to the next level, to the next stage, which is international, that's not an easy jump for people. Uh, how are you, how do you feel like you were able to make that jump? I mean, that's, that's a dream many people have that they're not able to fulfill. And how do you think that you and Steve were able to take your training to the next level to be able to accomplish that? Yeah, it's funny that you say jump and, and looking back, it kind of is. But to me, because that I first had that dream of running for Great Britain when I was 14, it felt like, how did it take me 14 years? Because I was 28 to get to this point. Like, it felt like it took forever. And I was like, you know, constantly every year I was beating myself. How have I not done it yet? So for me, it felt like it was kind of almost... I finally got what I deserved, even though that definitely wasn't the case. And like you says, it said it was it was a jump, and um, it was something that I'd always had in my mind of wanting to do. Um, but it did all kind of cut, start to click together, um, and I think a lot of that was just maturity with the marathon, kind of learning to give it the respect it deserved, and uh, just the years of. Of, of training kind of adding up because I think that's what we as runners tend to often do is have, you know, we, we have maybe a good training cycle and we think, all right, I've earned a good race. You know, this is going to be a good race. And then something goes wrong. It doesn't go well. And you think, well, that's not fair. You know, I did my time. Um, and then we kind of write it off and be like, okay, well time to start again, but you're not really starting again. You're starting, you know, once you take your time off and you, you do, quote unquote, start again, you're actually starting from where you where you left the time before. So you're constantly building, even if you don't get the results that show for it. So um, for me, I've always been someone who's kind of progressed naturally, I guess, um, in the, you know, every time I did a marathon, I took four minutes off until the last one where I only took one off, but still that's, you know, still a progression. So I think a lot of it was just it, it just slowly um, all the the hard work over years rather than over a few months just started to add up to where um, I was reaching levels where I was getting the attention. And then once it was within my grasp, uh, the Great Britain team said to me, you have to prove you're fit right now. And so I went out and found a 10K, flew myself down to New Orleans and uh, you know pushed myself. There was no one in the race for me to race against other than one guy who I think beat me by about five seconds and you guys can imagine um this you know one guy who was kind of just a little bit in front of me the whole way but wasn't was no way he was gonna let me uh, beat him at the end <laughs> so just kind of uh cruised it in as best he could keeping in front of me but um 
you know, once they showed me, once that gave me the determination to to do it, knowing that if I ran well enough, then they'd, they'd have to take me to this championship. So um, it was just, yeah, yeah, I guess it's the, the answer that no one wants to hear, but it's the truth is that you just, it's just hard work year after year that finally, finally pays off when you least expect it. One thing that I find interesting, especially for those that kind of got into running because they were good at it. You know, you said you finished fourth in the city and that became the impetus that drove you then to have this career in the sport. One thing I've seen with those Mm -hmm. types of athletes sometimes is that when they go to the elite level, when they get out of the structure of their college experience and they have to drive themselves and the results don't come as easy because the competition is is that much more difficult. There has to be something else beyond just being good at it that matters to them. And so you, you see people either evolve in their relationship with running or not. And so did your purpose in the sport change or evolve in a way that kept you in it or was always just driving for that competitive thing of making a British team? The British team thing was definitely always there. Like that was always the dangling carrot for me, knowing that, you know, somehow someday I was going to do it. I knew I was determined and I knew, you know, even if I was 77 years old and I got a some kind of master's jersey to, to do it, I was going to do it. And so that carrot was was there. And then once I got within reach, it, it just continued to, uh, I guess the flame like got brighter and brighter as as I um could like smell it and and get close to it but um it it definitely um you like you said there has to be more to it than than just being good at it and for me I loved you know seeing the hard work paying off and I like I love like Rocky Balboa films I love you know when the underdog comes along and like particularly Rocky that was always my my favorite thing of um thinking of myself as Rocky you know like training in Michigan I I was the the one we didn't have an indoor track, so we were out there running around an industrial park with you know semis driving around us. Um, and then once I got beyond that, I didn't really have um, you know the money or the support of. Uh, I had a sponsor in, in Saucony, but they just gave me clothes and shoes and, and apparel, which was wonderful and great. But it wasn't the money, so I knew that you know I was kind of being the underdog again because I didn't have the mm. the resources to just sit and. Um, just be an athlete I had to work full time and and get my master's at the same time so it was it was that kind of grit that I wanted to kind of be the one that proved I could do it against all odds I think that was a huge part of it for me and um I loved seeing the success and of course you know being successful when you um when you do get those results it uh it really does you know kind of keep that drive there and that's what I think I lost towards the end you did mention about me stopping running um, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, but towards the end, I did lose all, um, kind of passion for it other than, uh, the finish line or the being good at it aspect, which is why I think it was so easy for me to step away because that was the, all that was left. Well, and you got your team, you made, you made, you got the goal. Yeah. Yeah. And you that was the, the other thing I did that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which was yeah. the yeah. world half <laughs> championship team, right? How was yep. that experience? Um, well, I mean, firstly, uh, it was funny actually getting that vest because, um, I remember being, I think it was maybe December or January, my husband and I were on our honeymoon in Australia 
And I was kind of like, well, I'll run if I feel like it. We had no structure. We wanted to just enjoy this time. And then I got back to England. I'd barely run much in Australia. And, and people had said, someone said to me, oh, are you going for the world half marathon team? And I was like, the what? Like, there's a world half marathon? Like, that thing exists? Like, I, I had no idea. And they said, yeah, you're actually, like, quite high up on the list. And then it suddenly it was as if like I had laser focus, like there was nothing else I wanted. I was going to do it. And, you know, the British selection team were like, look, you didn't run the trials. Your your chances are slim. You know, you should have come and run the trials. And I was like, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a world half marathon championship. So like, I'm sorry I didn't do the trials, you know, three months ago, but I didn't know it existed. And uh, so then, but it still was that jersey and it made it realistic because it, it wasn't like the Olympics that I knew was completely out of my league, but it was something that was... Um, you know, a, a lesser, a, I guess, a B-level uh, opportunity to race for Great Britain. And knowing, like I said, that I'd put in 14 years of hard work, I mean, I had, I, I remember so many days where I just didn't want to run and I was out there on my own and I'd just say like GB, GB, or like, um, you know, just have that like uh, jersey in my mind's eye. So I think one of the moments I remember more than anything was just being in my hotel room and looking down at my hands and seeing that jersey in there knowing that I had earned it it wasn't one I bought on eBay or had been given by someone else I'd earned it so it was incredible and I'm sure you've seen photos and anyone who who googles my name will see the photos of me I was smiling like it was howling wind it was you know 15 mile an hour wind it was raining um if anyone has ever watched that or wants to see something funny in that video of um the coverage uh you see the men get literally blown off the course like you see them running in a straight line and then the wind blows and they get blown to the side that's how windy and nasty it was but I just didn't care because I was just so happy to be out there and maybe I didn't push as much as I should have done but I was planning on racing a marathon the London marathon a few weeks later so I did hold back and I knew that I'd only get one opportunity to do this for the first time. So uh, I wanted to make sure I enjoyed it. And, and yeah, so I was, I loved every second. I have a lot of experience with the capriciousness of making a UK team. I coached uh, Lenny Waite for uh -huh. a number of years and she had a lot of bad luck when it came to being selected mm -hmm. for crucial teams. And so for them to, I, I can actually hear their voices telling you what you can't do and for you to get out there and be able to get it done and do it makes me very, very happy. Not that I have any harbored anger towards them. I just think their ability to see clearly through the experience of the athlete rather than the experience of their position just is mind boggling mm -hmm. to me. But anyway, that's an aside. We'll leave that. Over. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, you kind of <laughs> crapped on your ability to make an Olympic team, but as a 236 marathoner, that's well under the standard for the marathon. And it's really only because of the crazy British rules that, that you would have never had a chance to make that team, Correct. even though you probably should have had a chance finishing fifth at the UK marathon trials and third of the 10 K trials is definitely legit, but we know that there are more politics going on in the UK selection that. Mm -hmm would unfortunately make it difficult but yeah and it is it is you know that i mean there's no best way of doing it really with the selection i mean i've had plenty of people complaining about the way the u.s 
does it but um you know it has been definitely very frustrating and and like you said Steve I know there's a lot of people in Britain who do get time and time again frustrated with the way that people are selected and my grandma was actually German so like at times in the past I was like I'm just gonna get a German citizenship as well I'm gonna get a German jersey and run for them instead (laughs) um but uh never actually did it I I and it's the same with the US people say to me oh you should um you should become a citizen and I'm like I just I just can't do it like (laughs) I want to run for Great Britain you know that's where I'm born that's where I'm from and I just I don't know if I could run in a USA jersey I I always just that was always my dream was the Great Britain one so anyway that was off topic sorry (laughs) so was it worth it so you were an elite athlete with a full-time job studying at the same time for your MBA LaSalle you got the British team that you dreamed dreamed about, but you didn't ever probably make any money mm-hmm. in the sport really, or money that would be worth speaking of. And no, you put yeah. you put in probably more miles in nasty Michigan weather than than you would care to reflect on at the moment. So was it was was it worth it when you look back? <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at that jersey right now. It's right above my head in my office, and um, yeah, it was worth every second. And uh, you know, I can't for anyone who is listening who has this big goal that just seems like it's never going to happen, and it's you know, you always wonder will it even be worth it, and why am I even bothering? But um, let me just say, it is worth it. And the longer it takes, the the sweeter it feels when you accomplish it. And for me, that 14 years made it feels so much better than I ever imagined it would. Well, we are all about big, hairy, audacious goals at Rogue. We, we carry, we care. We talk about this all the time in our podcast when on our mental training is, you know, first off, you have to set something out there that scares you to mm-hmm. death and, and something that p- people may not realize, especially for those of us who were, who thought about making a team or doing something at that level. It, the, the losses are so much more valuable and so much you learn so much more from mm-hmm. them than the successes. But in that process of making that team, you, you talked about the miles you ran, you talked about the work you'd put in about all of that. Tell us a little bit about that. You did most of this by yourself, mm-hmm. correct? I mean, other with that, I mean, you did most of your training on your own and how did, how did that factor into the process and how is being a runner, you had a fantastic coach, but you spent a lot of time doing your training by yourself. How, how did that work for you? And how did, how did you play that out? Yeah, that's interesting. I've never had that question before, but that's very true. I did, you know, all the way through um, when I was in high school, I had people to run with, but uh, from when I got to college, it was mostly on my own um, because my kind of learning curve and improvement curve went up so steeply that I kind of, um, you know, got ahead very fast. But um, it, 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 it's difficult to say. Like, I always wonder how I would have got on if I had a group to train with. Like I said, I did in high school and it did push me and I was able to really you know, push myself to a different level. But at the same time, again, I go back to that. I've always seen myself as that Rocky Balboa. And um, I particularly love, you know, Rocky Four, where he's out in the snow and, you know, just getting on with this stuff. And so I've always kind of thought of myself as that, just if you can push yourself, you're going to be on your own in a race. And I've never actually had the opportunity in a race to kind of 
be in that situation where you're in this group and I hear about how magical it is when you're in a group and you're just working together and you kind of like a, a train going along together kind of pushing one another and I've never had that experience and I'm I'm jealous I've had that experience but at the same time those races don't come along that often most of the time people end up on their own so I always knew that if I trained on my own if I could push myself and have that ability to dig deep without someone next to me or without that person right in front of me then I knew I would be able to do it when it mattered and um, I knew that I was holding myself accountable rather than relying on other people to kind of push me forward but I have always wondered what it would have been like I've often I often thought in college about what it would have been like if I went to a division one where I was surrounded by uh, you know, 10, 12 girls who were all kind of pushing themselves to this level that I was and would I have handled it or would I have kind of cracked and maybe I liked being the the big fish in the small pond. I'm not really sure uh, how, how I would have handled that. That being said, I've never won a marathon. Uh, the highest I've finished, I think, is is fifth. And, um, you know, I've, it's, I've only broken the tape of a race once. So it wasn't like in races I went to places where I could win everything but um I just feel like it made me tougher by by doing everything on my own and um Steve has been so good with me coming along and and riding a bike next to me or whatever but he's not someone who will be like you can do this great job so it's always been me and my internal dialogue so yeah the mental training piece comes into it um a lot I think so you're now more famous in retirement than than you ever were <laughs> as a runner, which is kind of interesting. Yep. So let's let's talk about that decision. You made your half marathon championship team. You got the British best. And then you decided to call it quits for a mix of reasons. So talk through that thought process. Mm-hmm. Well, I did try to, to keep the motivation going for a while and it did work I mean I, I got that jersey I then shaved four minutes off my half mar- of my marathon a month later uh got back to training again and then uh, ran for Great Britain again in the summer in the European Championships and then got another PR in December in in um California International but then it got to the point where I just could sense that I was starting to lose my passion for it like I said earlier it it became about the finish line and the training wasn't any kind of fun to me it was just about getting through it and all I could think about was well when I get to the finish line it's going to be all worth it but you you can't go about your life like that it's you know um it, it just doesn't make anything fun it's kind of like if you um had a vacation planned and you were so excited to go but when you get there you're like oh sorry you you have a vacation planned and like half of the fun of a vacation is getting to um the excitement of it and then enjoying it you don't just do it for the the pictures you look at afterwards and that's kind of what I was doing you know going on that vacation and just be like oh I can't wait to look at my photos afterwards um so I just noticed that my mindset was changing and uh I was just losing all ability to push myself. Um, it c- became a point where I would easily quit mentally. Um, that was something I'd never experienced uh, where, you know, I would just say I it wasn't I can't do this. It was I don't want to do this anymore. And I just coasted in and I've never done that before. Um, and then, yeah, the underlying thing was um, I'd had a menorrhea, which uh, for nine years uh, hadn't had a period and uh 
my health that was really bothering me uh, more and more as the years went by and and eventually you know I was approaching 30 my husband uh, now approaching 40 and I was thinking you know if this takes us a while the one thing in my life I wanted to do was make sure I had kids so um, I was just scared that I was going to lose that opportunity uh, particularly because when I stopped when I kind of came out with it um, no one was really talking about it uh, about what you know what um, what the long-term effects were, what the fertility effects were. So I, I had no idea what, what was going to happen and I wanted to make sure that, um, I could do it. So yeah, something snapped inside of me one day and I pulled the trigger and then didn't look back. And and yeah, like you said, um, then I became kind of came known as the, the no period girl. And, um, that's where I am now. <laughs> that's an odd thing to be famous for, but an important topic for sure, because it seems like, and Again, I don't know the elite world as well as you do, and I'm certainly not a woman, so I don't know that. But it seems like amenorrhea is fairly common in that world, and it's something that yeah. is kind of shrugged off as no big deal, as just sort of a part of the the thing. You know, if you're going to train at that high level, then you almost have to have it in order to make it work. So talk a little bit about that. What, first of all, for the guys that are listening, what is it? And is it dangerous? What have you learned in this experience kind of coming through that? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's not having a period, not having a menstrual cycle every month and uh, primarily brought on by, um, you know, and there's five different factors that kind of go into it. Um, I think, oh God, I haven't said this in a while. So let me see if I can still remember them, but it's um, uh, weight uh, and caloric deficit which is another one um your exercise your stress and i can't remember the fifth one but there's five factors that basically kind of make your body think that it's not got the it's not safe basically it kind of goes back to hunter gatherer times where they think your body thinks okay i'm not in a position to be able to have a baby right now so it stops your your cycles and uh to kind of preserve uh, that energy for other things and um, yeah i think a lot of people do get it but um, it was something that traditionally wasn't talked about, not just because of the, you know, the, Ooh, it's a period kind of thing, um, <laughs> that people didn't want to discuss, but more people, no one realized that anyone else was going through it. And I was definitely, um, thinking that was the case until I started speaking to people about it and they'd say, yeah, me too. And, uh, so that's when I became determined I was going to kind of get the word out, but, um, you never really know what exactly is the cause. In most cases, it's just having too low of a body weight. Uh, particularly for women, we can't really get away with having as low of a body weight um, than men can, as particularly body fat. And uh, so for me, I had just got to a point, um, I did lose about 10 pounds uh, within a very short period of time when I first came to the US. And I think that was enough to kind of kick it, uh, make it scared and... Um, and so uh, I just never got it back after that. And um, it was just a journey to kind of, um, you know, for me, I had to end up gaining about 15, 20 pounds um, before it came back. And, uh, you know, moving forward, I don't know whether that's my weight, my body wants to stay for the rest of my life. But uh, it just kind of comes down to a case of runners feel like they have to look a certain way, have to be lean, fit, fast. But for a lot of women, and men, even though you don't have the uh, physical sign of the the menses, um, 
some people just can't hold that load lower for body weight and need to keep more fat on their bodies um, to be able to keep everything running correctly. You know, Tina, I coached um, at a collegiate level at University of Texas in Austin. Mm-hmm. For I coached the women for seven years. And I don't think I'd actually ever thought about this factor being a male. I knew what I knew what when my body wasn't sitting at the right place and while my coaches might, might might push me to get lower weight, the I knew my body was happier a little what what he what my coach would have called a little chubby. <laughs> it always ran a little better, a little chubby. But when I coached at the University of Texas, it was amazing to me when I would talk to the women on my team. One of the very first things, once I got permission from the the nurse, the doctor, and our uh, our medical staff, if I was allowed to bring up the topic of amenorrhea, they said I was allowed to as long as I didn't make anybody uncomfortable. I would ask, and I was absolutely shocked at. I would say that of the in the years that I coached at the University of Texas, that was seven years. I would say three or four women during that time consistently had menses, which mm-hmm. is not a, as I found out later is not abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a crucial critical time for young women as their bodies are developing and, and things are happening in their bodies. So, you know, we, I think that when you talk, there's two different conversations to have here. One is what happens with elite level or sub elite level athletes who are trying to push their bodies so far and so hard from such a young age and the devastating effects that amenorrhea mm-hmm. has is one line of conversation. And another one is for those who are adult athletes who then get serious. At Rogue, we have a number of women who now are in the 60, 70, 80, 90 mile per week range who were not athletes at young at a young age. And now they're starting to have amenorrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of a difference there. But at the end of the day, you what, what I've read about what you've talked about is sort of a global picture. But there's also these two little sub silos mm-hmm. of, of effects that are, are happening with people. So you had when did your experience of of to stop having your period did that happen at a younger age and if so what worries did you have because of that and then as a sub question which maybe we might have to remind you of is what about women who are having that happened at 25 or 30 or 35 what what effects might we be seeing there yeah you you definitely might have to remind me cuz i do have mum brain going on i've in my other podcast episodes i've been interviewed lately i always forget the second question so you probably will have to that's why we have Chris. that's why we okay. have Chris. <laughs> um but yeah i mean i definitely agree with you there are that two those two kind of categories um i ha- did have my period when i was a teenager Although I did lose it for a little while when I was training um, at a training club with uh, Paula Radcliffe's coach, actually um, at Bedford and County, uh, it did. I did lose it for a few months, but I don't know if this was a coincidence or not. But he, the coach, told me to take iron pills, and I did, and it came back. So I don't know if that just was coincidental, whether or whether it was my iron being low. But uh, other than that, it had been very regular. And then it was just um, when I uh, got to college and like I said, the training kind of ramped up and uh, I did lose weight pretty quickly. Uh, that for me, it kind of went went off um, in the first place. Although that being said, I was definitely kind of restricting at that point because I had um, a coach, not um, the main coach, but one of the assistant coaches had told me to, that I could do with losing some weight. And so I was trying to 
lose it quickly. So I definitely was restricting, which I think is one of the major things that kind of contributes to this is is trying to consciously lose weight. Um, now, interestingly enough, kind of to go to the end of the story first, um, when I did get my cycles back last year, I ended up back at the weight I was when I was in high school and everything was smooth. So for me, that kind of goes on to the second point, which I think, if I remember correctly, was um, about women who it happens to later. Um, my first thing to ask them would be, are you maintaining your calories? Are you trying to get to that lean, fit, fast, I look fast thing? Because I think that's the trap that a lot of women, um, and I'm guilty of it as much as anyone else, um, falls into, which is I need to look like a runner. If I'm going to run fast and I'm going to put in all these miles, I need to you know, look lean and I need to look like the other elite runners. And uh, that's when you start either restricting calories or not eating enough calories for those increased miles that you're doing and that's when it kind of comes to bite you because um you know now your body thinks essentially that you're on the run and you know it's not safe uh, again so uh that's why it will disappear because it comes down to that caloric intake um and uh it's just your you know your your body doesn't have enough calories to function correctly so it takes it off the one that is um you know, the, the least important on in the right now. So, and that is your, your hormones. How do you balance that as a runner, the weight question versus the question of having normal cycles versus just getting the nutrients you need to stay healthy and avoid injury. You know, I didn't have amenorrhea, but I've had stress fractures that I think were manifestations of me dropping weight and not getting the right calories at certain times. And so that's the way it's manifested in me as a guy. But how do you balance that? Because it's tricky. I mean, could you have run 236, 15 pounds heavier? I I don't know. And that's, that's something that I've wondered about a lot. I mean, I have worked with uh, a dietitian, Nancy Clark, who is wonderful and really, really helped me a lot through this process. And, you know, she actually said to me, she thinks I could have run faster um, had I had some more weight on me. Um, because I obviously was in a calorie deficit, but at the same time, you know, I'm wondering the same thing, not even so much the speed. I think if I got the speed, I'd be fine, but I'm wondering, you know, how would my body have handled the training carrying an extra 15, 20 pounds around, um, that is, you know, every step that's more impact going on my body. So, you know, my bones, my joints, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've wondered the same thing, but, I guess I'm going to be the human experiment because um, eventually uh, I would like to have uh, a return to running. And when I do, um, you know, I'm determined I'm not going to lose my cycle. So I may end up being the human experiment who can see, you know, my body seems to have settled at a weight right now. And it has been that weight for the last three or four months. So I'm thinking that it that's where it wants to be. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it is a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you, you want to be efficient and there's all these studies that have shown that, you know, um, people who are at their quote unquote race weight, um, uh, elite runners who are at their race weight have, you know, run their best. But at the same time, if your body isn't functioning correctly, um, are you are you actually at your best? And then also if you're at risk of injury, like you mentioned, the stress fractures, I think people write that off way too much when uh, stress fractures are quite often the case of a nutritional deficit. Um, it's easy to kind of say, oh, I got injured because of this or that. But if you're not getting your calories in and you keep getting injured, then 
you know, surely it's better to be a few pounds heavier, uh, but know that you can get your training in. So yeah, it is a very delicate balance, like you mentioned. And I don't know if we'll ever really find an answer because everyone is so different. I think one thing I've learned is to kind of look at your family genetics. Um, you know, right now my body shape is pretty much exactly like my mum's and uh, my grandma's. So for me, I think that's kind of where my body wanted to be. And uh, what I was at my leanest, that didn't look like anyone in my family. So I guess if you're from a family who's, you know, they're all tall, lean, thin, uh, very, you know, um, typical runner statues, um, kind of body builds, then maybe that's, um, maybe that you can get away with that. But if you come from a family with, you know, bigger bones and bigger bodies, then maybe you are someone who's just going to have to kind of deal with it with having more weight on your body. So I don't know, there's no easy answer. You know, Tina, you brought up the grand dam of, of, Running nutrition. Many people don't know Nancy's Clark these Nancy Clark these days, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, she in the eighties and the nineties and the early aughts, she's was the as the nutritionist par excellence, and has always articulated and emphatically pointed out that you know the median the median way or the middle way is best instead of far edges. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I have is that if an athlete is eating the kind of foods they should be eating. And I know you're not a nutritionist, but you did get to speak consistently with the Grand Dam. So I'm just going to ask you this question and it's on topic. But if an athlete is running a, a sizable number of miles, let's say something between the 50 plus range or maybe 60 plus range, and they're eating a well-balanced, healthy diet of mostly plant foods with a with with a, with a with an adjustment for other things based on personal taste and what they may, may or may not be allergic to and all those other things. Caloric restriction at that point in time, just to me, has always seemed just an like crazy. And once you get to the point where you're doing a volume that is at least equal to what we were evolutionarily designed to be doing, from moving through space, of getting from one place to another, having you know feast and famine periods as we did as an evolutionary species, as someone who's at a 50, 60 plus mile per week range, caloric restriction is like if you're eating the right foods seems to me to be the wrongest move ever. And as many times as I've tried to articulate this to every athlete I coach, but especially to the female athletes I coach, I always seem to run up against a brick wall because they're in this process of comparison and compare and contrast. And so talk a little bit about the nutrition piece and maybe some of the sort of sub-level psychological sort of who you are as a human being and the compare and contrast process that happens that makes this subject both in my opinion, so readily simple on paper, but so very, very hard to actually implement in the real world. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it it is something that we all deal with. I mean, I used to deny that I did it, but, you know, even myself, I would be thinking about it during the day, even when I was running 90 miles a week. Oh, you know, I, I want to make sure I stay thin. I'm, I'm hungry, but I, I, you know, I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to look big. And I think social media has really taken that to the extreme. I mean, if you think about um, in the past, you know, the days of um, the, you know, the Dick Beardsleys and the, um, uh, you know, the Steve Jones and people like that who were just the best in the world, they weren't thinking about that kind of stuff because they were just out there doing their training, you know, eating what they wanted. I mean, Steve Jones, I've had him on my podcast. He talked about eating steak pies and drinking Coke. 
before his runs oh, and yeah. things like he that. Told us all about that too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, he didn't care. He just did uh-huh. what what he felt was right. And and I think now it's it's social media. And I actually I don't know when this is going to go live, but I posted last week about um, a picture of myself on my Instagram saying that you know I was trying to find a picture of myself to put up running, and I couldn't find one that I liked because everyone had kind of a bump in an area that I didn't like, and you know my belly looked too big, my arm looked too big, my leg looked awkward, all kinds of stuff. And we're all just searching for these, you know, perfect photos. And at the same time, everyone else is doing the same thing. So all we're showing is the the best and the, um, you know, the, the best case scenario, which isn't what running is about. And so all we see is each other's uh, best sides and it makes us feel like we need to do better or we're not good enough and uh, I think particularly with running it's very easy to pick a shot that makes your your legs look thinner or your your body look lean and, and muscular which makes other people then feel like they need to to lose weight or look like that as well even though they probably already do uh, and actually in my running community I've been doing a bit of an experiment asking people to share a photo of themselves that they don't like but picking a positive from it and they're all kind of saying well I've got the worst my photo is the worst (laughs) but actually everyone else is saying oh I think you look strong you look determined you look great and we all just do that and I think that's social media so you know coming back to Nancy um like I said she's so good at what she does and I'm, I'm glad you you mentioned that about her because she really is amazing and you know she even said to me about um you know if you if I I live in Kentucky so if I want to eat fried chicken go eat fried chicken if I want to eat um you know, she said, if you want to have ice cream every day, you can have ice cream every day, but just maybe don't have it late at night when you are binging, but um, distribute your calories throughout the day. And that was the biggest thing I learned from her um, was when we kind of restrict our calories, it's very easy to do the whole day being like, okay, I'm going to limit my food. But then you get to the evening and you're starving and you kind of go overboard, which is why I think I was eating tons of sweets in the evening because I had not eaten enough in the day. And so she taught me to kind of distribute my calories and she talked about buckets. So you have to fill um, each, you have four buckets each day and you have to fill them with enough calories. Um, And so I had to eat every four hours. Uh, I think at the time I wasn't running, but she said 600 calories every four hours, which if you think about having 600 calories at say 6 a.m., and then another 600 at 10 a.m. I mean, how many people would do that? Um, and then another 600 at 2. And then um, you get to, you know, 6 p.m. And I'm not even that hungry anymore. Whereas previously I had eaten maybe, you know, 300 for breakfast and and um, maybe, I don't know, 500, 600 for lunch. And then I'd get to the evening and i just binge. Um, so I think it comes down to you know, eating more throughout the day so that you don't get so hungry in the evening that you binge and then you feel bad about yourself because you've eaten too much in the evening and then you wake up again the next day not hungry. So, um, you know, she's got so much great, great advice and um, it really just comes down to, like you said, being smart. Um, Would you rather be able to run fast and run well or would you rather look look better in a bikini or a you know in shorts what what is up to you kind of the choice is yours the 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 decision is simple but you have to make that choice yourself we i said 
to many of the athletes when I coached at UT and as a, with the athletes I coach today, I coach a lot of women who are currently Olympic trials hopefuls. And I say, I have two things I say. Number one, healthy, happy, strong, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not healthy, you're not happy, you're not strong, then it's not going to work. Yep. That's the most important thing. And then the other thing is you're made, you're, 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 it's just a, I, I came from a religious background. Obviously I'm not very religious anymore, <laughs> but I love to say that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Like we're, the universe has made us the way we're supposed to, like the, we're, like you said, your parents, your mother, your grandmother, your mother, they have their somatotype for a reason and that we're, we're, we're evolutionarily built, or if you want to be religious, you can say you're built in the, in the image of whatever you want to be built in the image of. And it is what it is, what your job is to make the most and the best of what that is. And if you balance who you are authentically with being healthy, happy, and strong, mm-hmm. that'll really work. I love the third rule I used to have is don't eat after 8 a.m. 8 p.m. Like if you don't eat after 8 p.m., you're pretty much safe. You know, that's another thing that for many runners who ran 50, 60 miles a week plus, if you stop eating after 8 a.m., you were probably in a good position unless you had some real reason that you needed to do that, you know? So anyway, those those are, I'm so, I'm so happy to have you on this podcast because this is an issue that I think is, um, in my opinion, there are the two biggest reasons why women do not perform at the level that they need to perform. Mm -hmm. The first is sleep. I don't think anybody sleeps enough, but women are particularly in such a tough position, especially if they're moms and business people and athletes. Yeah. They're at such a deficit, and 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 it is the most important thing that we can do to be healthy athletes. But then they start doing that compare and contrast game, where they start to think they're supposed to look like yes. Colleen Quigley, or they're supposed to look like Emma Coburn, and it's just not going to happen. If it didn't already happen, it's never going to happen. And so, just be the most beautiful self you can be, and and know that if you're healthy, happy, and strong, you're going to get down the road as you need to. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a great way of putting it. What if I want to look like Emma Coburn, Steve? Chris, it's that ship <laughs> sailed, brother. <laughs> but you, you mentioned look good. you wouldn't I mean, look good. <laughs> but I bet Emma Coburn looked the same way she looks right now when she was four years old. <laughs> I hope so. Not. <laughs> yeah, right. So. So, Some yeah. people are born that way. You well, know? The other thing, though, about sleep and the timing of your, of your caloric intake is that it affects your hormones, which affects how your yes. body manages and places weight on your body and or stores mm-hmm. calories that come in. So if those two things are fucked up because you're restricting calories at certain parts of the day where you need it and you're not sleeping, then your hormones are all out of whack, too, which creates a, a mix of issues, including how you might be carrying your weight. So. Mm-hmm. Lots there. One of the things I've started doing recently is just eating bigger breakfasts, yes. which has definitely mm-hmm. helped manage my energy better throughout the day and prevent this. I'm a I'm a sweet I have a sweet tooth too, Tina. So helps me prevent that those late evening sweet tooth Absolutely. runs. All right, let's. So how long did it take you to get to get it back? Well. Uh, my story is a little bit deceptive because I never actually had a period. I got oh, wow. pregnant before I managed it. <laughs> is that even possible? I guess it is possible. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you, you have to ovulate miracle. before you can have a period. So ovulated and yeah, got pregnant. So I never actually, so I'm still going on no period. I just had a baby in the middle. So you're, 
<laughs> You're batting a thousand on that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> actually, I don't even know what that means, I'm afraid. I should, I'm saying yeah, but I'm not being British. I don't really understand baseball, but that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is a good thing. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think uh, so. <laughs> okay. So you've never, so you've yet to get it back. Yeah, well, I mean, I count it as getting it back because right. you know everything was functioning, or I wouldn't have ovulated. Right, um, right. But yes, I as I'm still breastfeeding, it's still it's still um, missing. But hopefully, um, you know, once I stop doing that, it will be it will be there unless I get pregnant before it happens again. But <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, I will have at least one and and be able to you know say that everything is working correctly. Um, well. Well, it sounds like you and Steve are doing work, so, you know. <laughs> They're at least dreaming about work. <laughs> so what did you do during pregnancy to stay sane if you weren't running? I actually did run, um, okay. which is quite funny um, because, yeah, I started to run again once I was pregnant, which made it a thousand times harder. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just a strange thing, especially at the beginning, cause I, I took that three months off and then, um, started to run again, uh, while I was, I think I was, yeah, uh, it was quite early on in the pregnancy. I started to run again, but you know, most people, when they first get pregnant, they just take this drastic kind of downswing and they really start to struggle because, you know, you're pregnant, your body is creating another person. But I, because I was out of shape and was essentially getting into shape by just running, even though it was only a little bit, um, I started getting faster, not a lot faster. I still was way, way, way off where I was before, but, um, it was kind of funny, but, um, yeah, I, I did manage to, to run a little bit all the way through, um, but keeping it easy the whole way, which was, um, quite enjoyable from that aspect to not have to do workouts, not push myself, but just kind of do what I wanted. But just in general, running through pregnancy is is really hard, um, just for obvious reasons. So it wasn't um, like, oh, yay, I get to go for a run. It was like, right, let's get through this. But I was doing it for health reasons rather than doing it for a purpose. So it was just kind of what I wanted to do. How, how long did you run during pregnancy? I Well, I actually gave birth to her um, three and a half weeks early. So I ran right up to the end. Um, because I never really reached that point where I was like, Ugh, kind <laughs> of, like, you know, just didn't want to move. Um, I was probably getting there, but then uh, she came out early. So I actually ran all the way. Um, I ran the week before because we had a lot of snow and ice the week that I gave birth. So she, I didn't want to risk running outside, but had had it not been icy, I think I probably would have even run the day the day I went into labor. How was that for you? And would you recommend it for others? I think it has to be a very personal thing. I mean, I know we all hate it when people say that exact answer, like it depends or what works for you, but that kind of is how it is. Um, for me, I had a few times where I thought, you know what, this is going to be my last run. Things don't feel quite right, but then I would try one more time and I would feel great again uh, but it was just overall a, a struggle um, but one thing that's funny and uh, interesting although it makes sense is um, going uphill was a heck of a lot harder when you're pregnant but going downhill was quite <laughs> nice because you, you obviously have the gravity like pulling you forward so you kind of go quite fast down the hills so um, had I lived somewhere where I could just run downhill all the time I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more 
but it one thing that I found difficult was um my I got quite in quite a few I don't want to say arguments with Steve's but discussions where for me because I'd always you know done all this training I felt like it wasn't worth going out there unless I was doing at least an hour so every day um after I kind of got back into it so I did build back in slowly but once I reached a point where I could run for an hour I wanted to do an hour every day and be it that I walked parts of it um or if I ran the whole way I wanted to do an hour or I didn't see the point and he would be like you don't have to run for an hour or you don't have to be out there for an hour and I was like I do I do and he just couldn't understand why I couldn't just go out for 20 minutes and and call it good so it was hard for me to like get my ego around you know making it 50 minutes and that being good or even the walking when I had to start walking you know I it would be I could make it 10 minutes of running and then I'd have to walk for two minutes so that was a really strange sensation and it wasn't that I was going too fast but I literally couldn't go slow enough to make it easy particularly when going up hills I would just have to walk up the hills so it is very very strange thing um it doesn't bounce which I know I thought it did would do before and everyone else thinks that you know you imagine this like basketball going like dung dung but it doesn't do that at all you you wouldn't even notice it unless you hit your arm on it um if it gets in the way but um yeah it's actually other than it being really really just difficult um with just breathing um it actually wasn't as different as i thought it would have been fascinating yeah my my wife <laughs> ran through all of our three pregnancies but the first one was more like what you're describing we had our first i think 3 weeks early and she ran basically right up until that happened and then mm-hmm. and then ran most of the way through the other two but it definitely each one was a little bit different in terms of how she was feeling. And so I think even within an individual, you can have different experiences from pregnancy to pregnancy, but you just have to do what you feel like you need to do. Yeah. You know, in your gut, whether you should be running or not. And, and, um, you know, you, if you, if it's pain, if you're getting straight up pain, then that's probably a sign that, that it's not good for you. Or if you're running awkwardly because something is hurting, you know, we, we should know that as runners, but in pregnancy, it becomes particularly important. You know, what's more important, this baby or, you know, get you getting a few miles on Strava. <laughs> so, um, you know, in your heart, whether you should keep going or whether it's time to kind of call it quits. And, um, I've quite liked seeing, uh, well, nearly Spence Gracie, who's pregnant right now. She kind of has stopped running and I'm glad that she's been able to admit that and kind of share that. Cause I think that shows other people that if someone like Neely can stop at 28 weeks or somewhere around there, when she stopped running, then other people can have the courage to do that too. If, if they need to. Yeah. I think the same was true of Lauren Fleshman and with her second pregnancy, she wasn't, she didn't have a good experience mm-hmm. running. So what do you, what have you yeah. learned that what messages would you like to deliver to the, the athletes out there? Probably mostly women, but I'm sure there are lessons for us guys too. Based on your experience as an elite coming through the amenorrhea, now having a baby of five months, what have you learned about that side of things, about being healthy and strong that you would want to preach? I think the biggest thing is that it, really doesn't matter what you look like it doesn't matter about your size it doesn't matter what your race photos look like it doesn't matter 
you know, all that stuff that we feel is so important and it does dictate how we feel. Um, for me, when I, when I stopped running, I was really worried, you know, I was launching my business running for real. I was, um, you know, trying to build a name for myself as someone people could listen to and trust. And I thought, why is anyone going to want to listen to me anymore? I'm not, I'm not an elite runner. I'm going to be a has-been, you know, I'm going to be getting, you know, chubby and and no one's going to be interested in what I have to say because, um, you know, I'm not going to look fit. So why would they listen to me when they could listen to someone who looks, you know, lean fit and they're running fast? Um, but actually, I found the opposite that people, you know, they they respect you more for, for doing what you need to do. They it doesn't really matter, um, you know, what stage you're in right now. People love you for who you are and particularly the people that matter to you, you know, your loved ones. They don't care whether you're 100 pounds, 200 pounds, whether you're a, a you know, 236 marathoner or a 636 marathoner. It, it really doesn't matter. They they love you for who you are. And at the end of the day running is something we do you know we enjoy it and it means a lot to us but it isn't it isn't the most important thing you know you don't hear people on their deathbed saying I wish I'd run a few more miles you hear them saying I wish I'd had more time with my family and friends those relationships are um, much more important and for me having that time away from running allowed me to I don't want to say repair because it wasn't like they were completely broken but my family and friends did say that they got me back um, because I, I've said a few times that I feel like running is like a was like a um, I don't want to say what's the male version of mistress whatever that would be um, <laughs> that uh, you know I was kind of hiding this secret lover who was taking my attention and my energy away and um, you know making me a hollow shell for for my family so just remember that your running is something you do but your family and friends and the people that matter to you don't really care um, you know how fast you run or how you look so just you know embrace who you are and um, don't let society or social media this like highlight reel that we see every day tell you that you need to be something just for the sake of kind of showing the world how great you are because the people that matter already know how great you are so I guess that might drop and we're so happy that your current, uh, your, your current Hello. husband got you all the way back. <laughs> yeah, he did. Well, he, he was all right. Cause I think he, he kind of was probably driven crazy by me. Actually. Yeah. I guess he got me back in a different way. I wasn't asking him, poking him in the middle of the night being like, why am I running seven miles on Friday rather than eight? Like, you know, <laughs> so he didn't have those questions. So he was happy, but awesome. Uh, <laughs> he also uh, probably had different reasons to that. I was driving him crazy afterwards. So. <laughs> Tina, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I wish we had another hour with you because we would take it, but, but we'll yeah, have to I get another to we'll have to, we'll have to conversation because there's other things I wanted to get mm-hmm. to with you. And, and one of the things we referenced earlier, mental training, you have a series on as well on your site, mm-hmm. tinamuir.com. So that's something we'd love to cover. That's a pet topic of ours. So we'll have to have you on. Maybe we'll have to come on your show. But yeah. anyway, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And it was fun. So there you go. Real Talk with Tina Muir. Again, check out her website, tinamuir.com, and her podcast, Running For Real. She, she's got some good stuff in there. Finally, before we close, we wanted to announce our next book for the book club. We're going to actually have special guest Dina Castor coming on with her new book, Let Your Mind Run. 
that she co-authored with Michelle Hamilton. I'll put a link to the Amazon purchase page in the show notes. And so get that book, start reading it. And as you have questions, fire those to me, chris at roguerunning.com. We'll be taking your questions before August 1st. We haven't scheduled our recording yet with Dina, but it'll be in early August. She's committed to joining us, so we're super excited to have her on to talk about her book. Again, Let Your Mind Run. So check that out. Of course, as always, check out our website at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.